open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're just going to look at a single verse here, but we're going to be covering a a number of different categories of Scripture, uh, or passages of Scripture rather, this morning, especially Romans 14. The title of this message is Growing in Conscience. Growing in Conscience. We're in a series in general called Growing in Christ, and for a number of reasons, which we'll get into in the message, we thought a, a, a message on what does the Bible tell us about the conscience would be useful to us. So open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1, five. We're going to look at a single verse, and we're going to really just focus on two words in that verse as the foundation of our starting point this morning. And let's remember as we read, this is God's redeeming, changing, authoritative word with power to change our minds, with authority to direct us, to reshape us, to affect us this very day and week. Let's read it with that expectation together. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Lord, bless the preaching and the obeying of your word. What would you do if you found yourself lost in a strange city trying to get to an important meeting? I imagine you do what I would do, which is that you would immediately consult your phone, the gift of God to directionless individuals. And after typing in the name of the destination, that familiar voice would come on your phone and gently instruct you when to turn right, when to turn left, and in my case, when to turn around. It would kindly correct you and return you to the route, and if you are in need, it can give you alternative routes that are better than the route you are currently on. Recently, I was trying to get somewhere, but I had neglected to charge my phone, and I realized too late because I couldn't both charge my phone and be on the way. And that is a terrible feeling for someone like me. The battery percentage was ticking down with every mile, While the little blue dot was assuring me I was going in the right direction, I was trying to memorize the directions, and yet I knew that was a hopeless endeavor. And I was just hoping that it would last just long enough to get me where I was going, that the battery wouldn't die, and I would be lost in the middle of nowhere with little chance of finding where I needed to be and perhaps a circuitous route home. The Lord has given us a a similar gift to that little voice in our phone for our spiritual direction. It's called our conscience. In each human soul, the conscience is a God-given voice that gives a sense of direction, a sense of right and wrong. And yet it is possible for even Christians to neglect to recharge or reset their conscience, and it can begin to 
fail them, or even to neglect studying how it is meant to function. I would venture to guess that few of us have perhaps even heard a message on the conscience, or studied a book on the conscience, or read biblical passages at length on the conscience. It's not something that we necessarily study, and perhaps more seriously, sometimes we can neglect it even in our own hearts. The title of this message is Growing in Conscience, and I pray it will serve to recharge or reset our conscience so that we can use it for God's glory. That would be my my summarized point this morning. Conscience is a gift meant to be used for God's glory. Conscience is a gift of God that is meant to be used for God, for God's glory. Glory. I want to make two points this morning, starting from this phrase that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. And then we'll take a long look at Romans 14 for our second point. The two points are cultivate a good conscience. That's point number one. And secondly, be gracious in conscience disagreements. Cultivate a good conscience and be gracious in conscience disagreements. Look at this first section together. Cultivate a good conscience. Paul says that the aim of their charge, their gospel charge, is love that issues from a good conscience. Now, we have to define the conscience so we can understand a bit what we're talking about. I want to highly recommend an excellent book by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley called Conscience. I'm sure they're not the first to write on this, but it is an excellent, brief, in-depth summation with a lot of practical examples of what the Bible says, how we are to relate to this concept of conscience. They say, and they define conscience this way, the conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Very simple and helpful definition. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. My own definition might be, it is our assessment of right and wrong, including our assessment of our own character. Often, the conscience doesn't just say generally what is right and wrong in the world, but it's said to testify about the rightness or wrongness of our own behavior and heart. So the conscience is called to bear witness in a number of passages. My conscience bears me witness, Paul might say. He's saying that his own conscience can testify to the rightness or wrongness of his actions. It is our assessment of right and wrong, including our assessment of our own character. Here Paul says that the aim is a good conscience. The word good here could be translated upright, which is its probable meaning. Good in that it accurately assesses right and wrong. It may also mean that it indicates to the godly person that their way is either upright or not upright. It affirms or condemns the actual behavior that it has observed in the individual. Now, because we're to pursue a good conscience, obviously it's possible to have a bad conscience. Titus 1.15, Paul writes, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, I just want to make a a point right at the beginning of this message. Um, I'm going to be going through a lot of scriptures and a lot of material this morning. I decided that was the best way to serve you with the brief time that we have. Um, I would encourage you to write down notes as you can, but we will certainly be recording this message 
Lord willing, and the electricity doesn't fail or something, we will be recording this message. And so I, I would encourage you, just allow these truths to affect you this morning, and don't feel like you have to jot down every single uh, scripture reference or quote that I, I provide. We'll, we'll have this available. You can re-listen to it at a later date if you need to. So Titus and Paul to Titus is referencing the possibility that there can be this defiled conscience, conscience that has been broken in some way. Clearly, those apart from Christ, from the renewal of their conscience, have a bad conscience, either in that it gives them a bad report on their behavior, convicting them of wrongdoing, something like we might say a bad report card. You have a bad conscience, it's telling you that you are bad. Or perhaps even worse, a bad conscience might be failing to accurately assess right and wrong anymore. We might think of the check engine light on the car. You could say a bad check engine light is one that it's on. Because it's telling you there is something wrong with your car. But you could also say a bad check engine light is one that's broken. Where there is something wrong with your car, but it's not telling you that anything's wrong with your car. Both could be defined as a bad, a bad news check engine light. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Paul says in Romans that one of the great uh, tragedies and travesties of this world is that people affirm, they not only do evil things, but they affirm them in others. So that their consciences are hardened. They are unable even to affirm what is right as right, what is wrong as wrong. So, since the charge of the gospel is to create love that comes from a good conscience, how do we cultivate a good conscience in our life? To be growing in Christ is to be growing in the gift of conscience. How do we do that? Well, I'd like to give three categories briefly in this first point. First, the first and the most important is God's Word. The good conscience is shaped by God's perspective of what is objectively right and wrong. The conscience is given by God, and it is generally accurate in depicting what is right and wrong. So much so that Paul says we're not to sin against our conscience, and yet there is a higher standard than our conscience to which it must conform and be corrected when it is inaccurate, and that is God's Word. A bad conscience calls evil good and good evil, or it is loaded up with the guilt of having disobeyed God's word. We are either, in a bad conscience, either crushed by our condemnation or indifferent to our sin, and often both can exist in the same person. But as we studied a few weeks ago, the law of the Lord revives the soul. And it has this effect of of recharging the the, the conscience. What good news it would have been if I would have had a power cord that worked on my drive on that day so my phone could be recharged or if there was a virus on my phone, something that I could press that would reset it and would eliminate it, some protection that would keep me in the right way so that I wouldn't be sent into some wrong destination. That's what God's Word does to the conscience. It resets it. It recharges it. It ensures that it is operating correctly, telling us which way to go. We need God's Word 
to recharge and reset our conscience. The Christian that neglects God's word can count on their conscience being increasingly dangerous in indicating something that is right that is not right, indicating that is something wrong that is not wrong. You begin to hear, even in our culture, people saying things like, it doesn't feel wrong to me. It doesn't seem bad to me. This doesn't seem that bad. What's the big deal? Those are all signs of a a conscience that has been disconnected from God's Word and is no longer issuing accurate instructions about the reality of life under God's gaze. So one category to be attended to if we want a good conscience is God's Word. We are, are not objectively moral people in a self-sustaining kind of way. We, we aren't renewable morality. We don't wake up in the morning and our conscience just instantly reset and renewed. No, we need God's Word to recharge us and reset us in rightness, in the right way to go. Second category under this topic of, of developing a good conscience is what I might call proven reality. Proven reality. So there's God's Word, and then what I might describe as proven reality. And Sally, in his book, uh, has these helpful phrases. He says, there is truth inside God's Word, which is overwhelmingly the most important, but there's also truth outside of God's Word. Or I might use the phrase, proven reality. St. Augustine said, all truth is God's truth, meaning that anything that is actually objectively true has bearing for the Christian in how they understand their conscience. Nacelli, again, I'm I'm referencing him repeatedly because I I would love for all of you to read this book. Very helpful, very biblical. Nacelli says this, Sometimes our conscience is mistaken because we've applied biblical principles the wrong way due to being misinformed about truth outside the Bible. For example, you might think that a particular form of birth control is acceptable, but later change your conviction about it when you learn that it induces abortion. Very helpful example. When we form convictions about what we believe is right and wrong, we must take into account truth in two spheres, truth inside the Bible and truth outside the Bible. Very helpful. The biblical example that that came to my mind when I thought of this is Paul in Acts 23, 1 through 5. Listen to how Paul does this. This is exactly what Paul is doing. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Interesting, it's not necessarily what Paul said that struck his conscience as inaccurate. What struck him as inaccurate was his ignorance that this was the ruler of God's people and therefore deserving of a particular honor. And that knowledge then affected his conscience such that he acknowledged, okay, that was the wrong thing for me to say, not because the Bible categories changed, but because he learned something about the situation he didn't know before. And so that it informed his conscience about how and how Scripture would apply to this particular situation. That's what I mean by proven reality, or Nicelli's phrase, truth outside the Bible. Now, it, it, important caveat, it never contradicts the Bible, 
It can never overrule the Bible, and it can never be allowed as an excuse to disobey the Bible, but it can inform us about the best way a biblical command or principle should be applied in a given situation. Imagine a certain medicine, for example, that seems helpful as far as you know, but then you come across definitive proof that it certainly causes fatal cancer or that it was produced using unethical actions. That knowledge of proven reality then has to be taken into account in cultivating a good conscience. This proven reality category uh, was what we were doing as pastors recently when we, we had a lengthy discussion about looking at various COVID vaccines, to be very relevant right now. We wanted to understand what relationship, if any, different vaccines had to research related to abortion. We wanted to know. We didn't want to assume there was no relationship, and that study and discussion helped us to make an informed decision for ourselves and for our team and for team counsel to others so that we were seeking to cultivate a good conscience that honored the authority of God's Word and was accurate to the best of our ability regarding proven reality or the truth that is present in God's world. If you would be helped by this, I can... I can just let you know we will not be. I know there are some churches that are indicating this at some level. Somebody's asked me this. I thought it would be helpful to say we are not going to be requiring a vaccine for attendance at church service. I trust you would know that, but just in case that was a question on anybody's mind. We would certainly encourage Christians, as the vaccines continue to be rolled out, to study the manufacture and production because vaccines are not all identical in their manufacture or in their contents. As a general rule of thumb, the concept of medicine or vaccines, the concept hypothetically, is not an unbiblical one. God can allow us to use natural things in this world for the good of people. It's also something we should bear in mind that the relative safety of any medicine is a judgment call for an individual Christian to make. Whether that particular one is sufficiently safe in their mind or not, that that is an area, and we'll get to this, of conscience for the person to decide for themselves, not for someone to decide for you. When it comes to the ethical manufacture of vaccines, I cannot go into all of them this morning, but I would recommend that you look into it. I I would recommend that a Christian not just assume that there is no research to be done. Now, no person can possibly know everything there is to know. God and God alone knows everything there is to know. And reasonable ignorance is not dangerous in the life of a Christian. There is reasonable ignorance. I don't know everything there is to know about most things. And it's hypothetically possible that some knowledge could be out there that if I did know, it would change my course in a particular direction. We cannot bear the conviction or responsibility for not knowing everything that God knows. But a reasonable research for significant decisions is a way of informing our conscience to ensure that we are honoring the authority of God's Word in the real situation we are facing. We would encourage you, as you think about vaccines, to study the manufacture and the contents of those vaccines in light of God's Word. This revealed reality has been historically important. Imagine, for example, if you were to purchase a certain kind of very comfortable cloth in the 1700s in London, England. But then you came across definitive proof that this cotton is virtually only produced 
by the evils of the American slave trade. Now, nothing in the Bible is against cotton, so it doesn't harm God's word to wear cotton. Aren't we all grateful for that? And there's nothing in, in Scripture that, that prohibits cotton in that regard, but the proven reality of its unethical manufacture could certainly have affected the conscience of a Christian in that scenario. Do you see how that proven reality is a component that needs to be reasonably considered for a Christian? Think of just some practical examples. A husband who ignores the reasonable signs of his wife's fatigue and goes out with his buddies for his game night anyway. A wife who ignores reasonable signs of her son's exasperation and continues with her motherly lecture. A friend who ignores reasonable signs of his own sickness and shows up at a party anyway. Now, there is nothing wrong with going out for a guy's night or a wife giving a godly lecture to her son, or a friend going to a party. There is nothing unbiblical about any of those actions. It's the circumstances that renders them unbiblical in that particular case. Helpful that we are meant to use common sense in understanding our world so that we can accurately apply the authority of God's Word in a real situation. Now, couple of caveats. Proven reality will never contradict God's Word. It is never an excuse for disobeying God's Word, but it does help us to understand how to obey God's Word in a particular real-life scenario. Proven reality is not a hunch. It's not a guess. It's not a suspicion, and it's not just based on something we happen to hear online. It is something that can be reasonably proved and demonstrated and verified to be objectively true. That should affect us. So how do we cultivate a good conscience? Well, we focus on and prioritize the understanding of God's Word. We have a a reasonable awareness of proven reality or truth, we might call it, outside the Bible, in God's world. The third category that we have to consider also is our heart. It is possible to be aligned with God's Word technically and even aligned with proven reality and yet fail your conscience because of the state or motive of your heart. Romans 14 addresses this. Speaking of meat eaters in the the Roman church, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. The meat eaters here are technically aligned with God's Word, and there's nothing about the proven reality of the world that exposes the action as sinful. Paul actually says, meat is meat. But their heart is lacking faith. Or we might think of a person whose heart is consumed by a sinful motive, and though they are lined up with God's Word, and though they are not transgressing some proven reality in the world, yet their heart causes their conscience to be bad in this case. We must be aware of our heart, our motive, a technically biblical action that is not misinformed by some obvious circumstance, could still be wrong because the motive of the heart is doubting and not in faith. That means to have a good conscience, we must be aware of our heart. Why am I doing this allowable thing? 
Why am I not doing this allowable thing? What's the motive of our heart? I hear in many cases, uh, people might say something that they, they just, just so want to do. I just, oh, I just think it'd be great if I could do this. And they say, well, well, why not? There's nothing in the Bible that says I can't. I think but that, that, that may be true, but you have another question to ask. You have to ask why you are doing it. You can't just ask, am I free to do it? That's a good question. And, and if, if you weren't free, then you couldn't do it. It didn't matter how you feel about it. But, but if you are free to do it, you have to also ask, why are you doing it? Obviously, our heart is always mixed, but if your heart is consumed by either doubt or self-serving motives, then you can sin against your conscience even if you're doing a technically allowable activity. Paul's going to say this in a minute to, to neighbors who put a stumbling block in front of their fellow Christian and tempt them to sin. He's saying this it's technically allowable. There's nothing in the circumstances of reality that say it's bad inherently, but you're sinning because you're not loving your neighbor. So these are the three categories. If I was going to give you an overview, I would say, how do you cultivate a good conscience? You prioritize and study God's Word. You line your heart up with God's Word. You flood your soul with God's Word. You don't allow cultural priorities or popular views of morality to outshout God's Word. You let God's Word shape your thinking about what is right and what is wrong so that when you face Him, you're not defending yourself of what you read on Twitter. You're taking His Word at His Word. You're reasonably considering what you can know about proven reality, about what is true in this world, so that circumstances don't leave you in the dark in an unhelpful or ignorant kind of way. And you're studying your heart to ask, why am I doing this thing? Why? Is it from doubt? Is it from fear? Is it from selfishness? Does it lack faith? Is that why the overwhelming reason why I'm doing this thing, oh, then, then the conscience can be defiled. Remember what I have said the last couple of weeks, there, there is a great danger in good things that sometimes are wrong for us because we crave them above the Lord. This is dangerous. This is where I was personally convicted. What, what are things that, that seem reasonable in the moment, but in the end they, they, they reveal a hardness of heart, those little ways that we allow our conscience to become calloused. Paul Tripp speaks to this. He says, what once bothered us doesn't bother us anymore. What once activated our conscience doesn't seem to anymore. What we knew was outside of God's boundaries and therefore functionally outside of ours lives now inside our boundaries, and it doesn't matter to us anymore. It is a scary place to be. The hard heart is a stony heart. It's not malleable anymore. It's hard and resistant to change, no longer tender, responsive to the squeeze of the hands of the Spirit. There is evil in our hearts and in the acts of our hands, and we're okay with it. Could there be a more dangerous place for a believer to be? I want to urge us, if we're to use our conscience for God's glory, let's ask the question, is my conscience tender or is it tough? Is it sensitive or is it hard? Am I sensitive to things that Jesus would be sensitive to in my life? Let me urge you, especially if you're under 30, ask this question, do you believe your conscience tenderness glorifies God. 
Do you tend to say, why can't I, instead of why am I? Ask these questions. I I would commend to you this counsel from the hymn writer, Isaac Watts. He said, preserve your conscience always soft and sensitive. If but one sin forces its way into that tender part of the soul and dwell there, well, the road is paved for a thousand iniquities. Ask yourself the question, where is my conscience hard right now? Where is it callous right now? We, we all have areas. Be, be honest with yourself and let the Lord's Word speak to you. Where do you have a bad conscience, a hardened conscience, where you allow things, and not because you've grown in your understanding of Christian freedom, because you've grown used to indulging in sin without considering it anymore? Where do you need to grow in the sensitivity of your conscience? I have areas going through here. I was thinking of areas. I need to be more sensitive there. I need to be more quick to notice the prickings of my conscience and the voice of the Holy Spirit working in tandem to help me see where sin is at work in my motives or in what I allow in my life, what I prioritize, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. Where is your conscience no longer tender? Where has it never been tender? Where does it need the reforming power of God's Word to bring conviction and change? Here's where the gospel is so valuable. You love these phrases in the New Testament where it says that in in the death of Christ, our conscience is sprinkled clean from an evil conscience so that we're cleansed of the guilt that our conscience rightly heaps on us and we are given the gift of a renewed conscience reformed by the Holy Spirit that can tell us accurately, you you really are a sinner, and yet, and yet, we can tell our conscience also, Jesus Christ died for my sin. So that we can take our conscience and its condemning voice as it grows in sensitivity. We'll see more of our sin, and when that happens, we can take it to the cross of Christ and say, see there, conscience? Do you see that? There is the sacrifice for the sins you've been telling me about recently. The conscience can only tell you right from wrong. It it can't tell you redemption and forgiveness. That's what Jesus is for. So you take your conscience to the cross and you say, conscience, listen to the words of Christ when he says, it is finished for those sins that I agree, you are right, they are present in my life, and keep telling me because I want to please him. Actually, tell me more, conscience. Where else is it? Where else are there calluses that need to be sensitized. Let's go to the cross together and let the look of Christ and his death for our sins break in to that callous conscience and open up sensitivity again. That'll be a hard, painful process, especially if there's calluses that have been on there a long time. And yet, there's joy and freedom in loving that Christ that died for our lust and selfishness and laziness and anger and pride and now gives us the joy of living in the freedom of loving him. What does it mean to have a good conscience? What means cultivating a good conscience that lives in light of the cross, in light of God's holiness? But a a major second category we have to consider here, that we've thought a lot about this last year, is how does our conscience relate to other people's consciences? I I was thinking of, of driving. If you could only ever drive alone, wouldn't driving be fun? I mean, if there was never any cars on, if you had your own highway system, you could drive as fast as you want, as indifferent pretty much as you wanted. You could 
read while you drove. I mean, you could do all kinds of things if there was never anybody else on the road. But gosh, there they are. And they go slower or faster, more aggressive or less aggressive. There's always people there. These worst drivers, that they, some go faster than me and some go slower than me. And I don't like either of them. So we have to ask the question, how, how do our consciences work when we're around other people with consciences? How, how does that work? How do we engage with them? What does a good conscience, a godly conscience look like in the way that it relates to others? And that is a, that is a difficult question. It has been this year, as you know, for Christians to navigate. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 14. We'll spend the rest of our time in this passage. We won't look, obviously, at anything like all the details. But I, I want to read it quickly. And I just want these words to wash over us. And I hope it will compel you to look again at this passage in the future and let your view of conscience disagreements be affected. Because the overall point I want to make is that we're to be gracious in conscience disagreements. Let me read this to you. But let's, let's begin in, in chapter 13, verse 13. So I think this is a helpful thing to read in context. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteem all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Drop down to verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Remarkable chapter of Scripture. 
I mean, remarkable. Apparently in Rome, there were some Christians who were operating under an inaccurate interpretation either of their culture or of Scripture, and they were assuming that God didn't want them to eat meat, something that they were actually, objectively, Paul says, free to do. He makes it very clear. This is the weak in faith. They are weak. They are immature in their understanding or in their faith. They actually could do this. It's not objectively wrong, but their perspective is bound by the fact that they think it's wrong to have steak. There's others that know better. Paul calls them the strong in faith, but his overwhelming emphasis here is not on whether meat is allowable or not allowable, though he makes that clear. The the overwhelming emphasis here is be gracious to one another. Be kind and gracious to one another. Be gentle toward one another. This is, this is a very, very important category to have. Now, I, I want to make five, and I promise I'll move quickly through these, five points about disagreements of conscience that help us in this, this roadway that we're in. How do we relate to each other? The first is that we're to be loving and honest toward those with a bad conscience. Loving and honest toward those with a bad conscience. This is not the emphasis of Romans 14, but you do notice what Paul says at the end of verse 13. The Christian is to walk properly, not in explicit sin. So what Paul says about conscience disagreements and being patient and gracious is related to those things where a Christian is free to do something, but for some reason they feel like they shouldn't. He doesn't say that about Christians who are explicitly sinning against the clear teaching of God's Word. It's not as though he says, listen, those of you who are faithful husbands, look, be, just, let's be understanding with the adulterers. That's not the way he relates to clear violations, prohibitions of Scripture. In that case, his word would be more what he says in Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So there is loving confrontation, gracious honesty to help the person with a bad conscience. They're not just holding themselves back from something they could be free to do. They're doing something that is prohibited to them. That, that person needs to be lovingly helped, encouraged, challenged. That's often what people who don't know the Bible well get wrong about judgment. We're not to judge, and they include the category of, you shouldn't even judge somebody who's explicitly disobeying God. Well, you're not to judge them, but you are to confront them. Because trust me, our confrontation of one another is much better than the confrontation of God on the last day. Our confrontations are God's ultimate view miniaturized into human form, which is a very gracious way of viewing correction. So we are to be loving and honest towards those with a bad conscience. So, for example, a brother or sister who is engaged in, in media pornography and defends it as art appreciation does not just have a weak conscience or a different conscience. They have a bad conscience, and they need to be helped by their fellow Christian. The brother or sister who gossips or slanders online in the name of transparency does not just have a different opinion. They are disobeying God's word. They need to be lovingly helped to change. I don't want us to misunderstand conscience disagreements. There is a place for flexibility on the road. 
among those who have a slightly different view of, of driving. But that is not what you do when someone is ramming their car into everyone down the highway. That person must be stopped, must be helped. So be loving and honest toward those with a bad conscience. But then in 14, as he transitions to 14, he begins to look at this idea of these areas that, that aren't explicit disobedience, they're just not full awareness in the Christian life or faith. And he gives several other points. First, I would say this, do not be self-righteous towards those with a different conscience position. Nacelli and Crowley again say, if everyone had the same conscience standards, we wouldn't need passages like Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, which teach people with differing consciences how to get along in their church. In Rome, apparently, there were some who thought meat was forbidden. Others who understood that Paul was right when he said nothing is unclean in itself. And this was leading to conflict in the church. Those who were eating were despising those who were abstaining. You legalist. And those who were abstaining were judging those who were eating. You pagan. Notice that Paul's first and overriding concern is not who is accurate or inaccurate in this particular matter, but their disposition toward one another. There are countless areas like this in everyday life. And in some cases, they're even less clear than the issue of meat in Rome. In the issue of meat, there is a clarity that Christians can eat meat. Paul makes that clear here. There could be other issues that Scripture almost doesn't address at all. Well, if we're to be gracious where Scripture actually does give someone freedom, how much more gracious should we be in an area that Scripture doesn't really give any kind of indication about? Just to give some really relevant examples. Is wearing a mask the right thing to do? The godly thing to do in all circumstances, even if there was no government mandate? Is it the wrong thing to do? In all circumstances, even if there was a government mandate? Are all vaccines always wrong to take? Are all vaccines always right to take? Is having a baby in the hospital always the right or the wrong thing to do? Is eating organic food always the right or the wrong thing to do? Is living off the grid always more godly or always less godly than someone who doesn't? Is voting in every election always the right thing to do? Is voting the way I vote always the right thing to do? Is homeschooling the only right thing to do? Is going to college always and only the right thing to do? Is it always the wrong thing to do? You can do it either way. These are areas that Scripture does not address directly. Now, there might be a certain circumstance in a certain country in a certain time where the proven reality of the world should weigh in on the conscience. But you get the point. The Bible doesn't actually have verses about these things specifically. You can't go to Romans 19 and find a verse specifically about masks or vaccines or babies in the hospital or organic food or living off the grid or elections or homeschooling or hospitals. There's a, there's a verse about that. It doesn't speak to that. It doesn't even say what this passage says about meat actually is okay. What Paul is saying here is applicable. Be gracious. If you believe it is best to abstain or to choose a certain thing, but Scripture doesn't address it directly, Don't you judge those who make a different decision. In this case, he's saying, don't you judge them. And actually, for the other person, he says, don't you despise them if they restrict themselves unnecessarily. 
Don't you despise them. He goes on to say, you are not their master. So the implication, as the commentators point out, is, look, don't judge them, first of all, because that's not your job. And ultimately, you need to be reminded, you're going to be judged by God. So bear in mind when you're quick to judge, quick to despise. Look, look at that pagan. Look at what they do. Look what they watch. Look at the choices they make. Remember, God is watching you as you do that. Remember, we're not talking about that first category where clear violations of Scripture, where the overwhelming evidence evidently non-refutable makes the clear choice of godliness present. But many times what Christians do is they take a principle that is clear in Scripture. They pack it with their own assessment of subjective evidence and they equate the conclusion with God's authority. Be careful, Paul says. God knows what he didn't mean to say. He doesn't need your help to finish the sentence. He doesn't need your help to fill in the bullet points of how this verse should really be applied. Be careful. Nothing wrong with you doing it. Actually, you should obey your conscience unless your conscience is leading you to directly disobey God's word. That's the whole point of the second section here. You should absolutely obey your conscience. If you're convinced, based on your study of circumstances and the principles of God's word, that your conscience is telling you, based on your own heart and your own motives and why you would be doing it, that this is the right choice for me, then you had better do that. But you had better not judge the other person who assesses it differently without violating explicit commands of God's word. To do so is to violate God's word. How ironic that a person could be disobeying God by judging others for disobeying their own word. Do not be self-righteous, whether judging or despising, those with a different conscience. Third category. Help others obey their conscience unless it leads them to disobey God's word. Help others obey their conscience. That's the point here. Verse 15 says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. The the overwhelming emphasis here is, is is not the Christian that is convinced of their position and annoyed with you. I heard one commentator that said, look, this isn't about a Christian who's annoyed that you're able to do something I can't. That is not in view here. Man, that just bugs me. You can do that and I can't. How come? You shouldn't do that. That's offensive. It offends me because I can't do it and you can't. It offends me. Now, that is not what's in view here. Jim the strong who's offended by someone who's freer than he is is not what's in view. What's in view here is a person who is tempted to do that thing that their conscience doesn't allow when they see you doing it. Very important distinction. This is the Christian who says, look, I I feel that to do this, to eat this, to go there, to observe that would, would be to violate my conscience. I can't do that in faith. I, 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 but, but maybe I'm wrong. I, I'm not sure. I'm, I want to do it, but I'm, I'm, I'm torn. I, I, I don't think I should. I feel bad about it. And, and, and the brother says, come on, come do it with me. Come on, let's go. Let's go have some steak. I don't think I'm supposed to eat steak. And I'm, I'm not sure I'm supposed to do that. And this brother knowingly models or, or leads this, this weaker Christian to do something that they could do, but they're not sure they should do. And Paul says, no, no, no. No, your responsibility is to help them obey their conscience until their conscience is informed 
more by Scripture. It's to help them, even to the aim of laying down your own rights. You, you must help them. Help them obey their conscience. Sacrifice so that you, they help them obey their conscience. Always obey your conscience. Obviously, unless your conscience is telling you, I think it's right to leave my wife. Well, then you disobey your conscience and obey God's word. But if it's in one of these secondary areas where the Bible doesn't speak to it, but yet your conscience is weighing in, help your brother obey his conscience. Don't put a stumbling block in front of him. Help others obey their conscience. We should always obey our conscience. Kevin DeYoung says this, When we violate our sense of right and wrong, even if the action in itself is not sinful, we are guilty of sin. Very important sentence. That's from the book, The Whole in Our Holiness, which I would also commend to you. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That means if you don't believe what you are doing is acceptable, then it is not acceptable for you to do it. You must not ignore your conscience, even if the Bible gives the green light. The red light in your conscience should not be transgressed. Fourth category. Do not bind another person's conscience with legalism. You notice what he says in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? This is the person who says they shouldn't do something that the Bible allows them to do, but demands that everyone keep their standard. They're not personally tempted to do it, but they demand everyone else will not do it. You will keep the standard of my conscience. He says, who are you? You, are not, you don't get to decide for another person that they have to obey your conscience. Sam Storms helpfully here says, the conscience of the Christian is obligated and bound only by what the Bible either commands or forbids or by what may be legitimately deduced from an explicit biblical principle. This is the problem that Paul addressed in Galatians and Colossians. He says, you must not submit to regulations. These people that come in and say, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't eat this, you can't go there. He says, no, 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 you under the authority of God. If they're tempted, don't tempt them, but you are not required. And on the other side, a person must not indicate to someone else, my practice is the same as God's authority in your life. Do not bind another person's conscience. Unless the Bible explicitly prohibits or commands them to do something, your practice is just your practice. You can give them counsel. Here's why we think it's wise. Here's why we found it helpful. Here's why it guards us from temptation. But this is just our practice. It's not God's word. A very helpful phrase to get in your vocabulary. Look, this isn't God's word. This is just a practice we found helpful. Do not bind another person's conscience. Finally, Sacrifice your freedom rather than tempt another person to sin. This is Paul's overwhelming point here, and again in 1 Corinthians 8, that we are not, we are not to do even what we are free to do if it will draw someone else into sin. Do not do it, Paul says. Do not put a stumbling block in front of your brother. Do not. Your freedom in Christ is a freedom to serve. It's a freedom to lay down your rights for the sake of others. Not to submit them to legalistic demands, but to sacrifice them if it genuinely serves the health of a brother or sister in Christ. Doug Moo says, if Paul implies Christ has already paid the supreme price for that weak Christian, 
How can the strong refuse to pay the quite insignificant price of a minor and occasional restriction in their diet? Notice the difference. This is not a brother who is firm in his beliefs and just doesn't agree with us. This is a Christian who will be drawn into the action and will violate their conscience by following our example. If that is the case, Paul says, you must remember that the good of your brother and sister is more important than your freedom. Now, much, much more could be said. But these are some categories I would encourage all of us to study and consider in how we navigate the road. We are not driving all by ourselves on our own highway. Yes, our conscience is our own and not someone else's. Our conscience is not to be equated with God's Word because our conscience could be wrong, and it takes into account our own heart, which thankfully nobody else shares. So we must navigate this road of conscience with graciousness and loving kindness and patience. And I want to say to you, we believe you have done this so well this last year. I'm sure all of us can grow, but we want you to know as pastors how well and how grateful to God we are for this church in what surely is the most intense conscience navigation season I've ever experienced as a pastor. You have done this so well, gracious, patient, sharing opinions, keeping them from being assigned as God's word, and yet seeking to follow your own convictions faithfully according to God's word. Please be encouraged. We're not bringing this message by way of correction, but just for information, just to encourage us and hopefully edify us in how we think about these things, and and even all the more in the days ahead. It doesn't seem that these kinds of issues are going away anytime soon. So I would commend to us the continued study of the topic of the conscience and how the Bible speaks of the conscience, and especially how we're to relate to others in disagreements of conscience. Passages like Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 are very, very helpful in directing us in a Godward direction as we navigate this conscience highway. God has given us a gift. It's a gift. It's a a voice. It's not always right but it can be increasingly useful as it's aligned with God's Word. It's a gift that's meant to be used for His glory. It keeps us away from driving through people's houses and running over people's cars. It guides us in the right direction. It shows us the way to go, submitted to God's Word and under the authority of the Holy Spirit. Let's use that gift. Let's be sensitive to it. Let's repent where it's been hardened and become stony. And let's bring that stony conscience to the foot of the cross and let the bleeding Savior soften our ground. And let's honor the God who has put us on this road, given us this gift, and called us to live until we see him for his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the members of this church who faithfully have applied the truths of this passage over a, 
a difficult season of conscience navigation. I pray that you would continue to give them grace and strength and patience to honor you, Lord, to faithfully steward the consciences you've given them and to faithfully love and be gracious with their fellow Christian drivers on this road. Lord, we give you the glory for this miracle, Lord, that lumps of clay could have an indication of what is right and what is wrong that operates within them. Lord, we give you the glory for it and thanks for it. And we pray, Lord, renew our consciences. Where they are dead, awaken them. Where they are weak, strengthen them. Where they are misinformed, inform them. Lord, where they have become hard, soften them. And may we live sensitive, Lord, to your glory in every moment until you lead us home. In Jesus' name, amen.